Hey, what's up, guys? It's Dave. Today's episode is with Gabriel Hamill, and we are going to talk about how he went from the National Guard to building a real estate empire through seller financing and creative financing and just cutting the bank out of having to do his transactions. Also, if you haven't done so already, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast so that you can see more of our episodes and so that you can tell iTunes or Spotify or Pandora or wherever you listen to this that you like the show and they will help us get more followers and more people in the community. Thank you very much. As always, show notes are found at familiarytomillionaire.com slash podcast. Now relax and enjoy the show. You're listening to the Military Millionaire Podcast, a show about real estate investing for the working class. Stay tuned as we explore ways to help you improve your finances, build wealth through real estate, and become a person that is worth knowing. Hey guys, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the roadblock to success for military members in getting started in real estate investing. For many of us, the barriers of time, location, and not having the right knowledge keep us from building wealth while serving our country. Well, let me tell you about Storehouse 310 Ventures. They get it. Storehouse 310 Ventures is owned by two active duty naval officers that love to make investing fun, lucrative, and have a passion for education, theirs and yours alike. They offer full turnkey rental properties in a market where the numbers make sense, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yes, Milwaukee, home to the almost 2018 division titled Milwaukee Brewers, the well-known Miller Brewing Company, and a lot of delicious cheese. Storehouse 310's properties are fully renovated, leased, and have property management in place. Through their rigorous analysis and selection process, they do everything possible to ensure each rental property meets their high standards and offers fantastic returns. Storehouse 310s allows you to invest with confidence while you are living out of state. They have a network of lenders, insurance companies, contractors, a title company, and much more to serve you all along the way. There is absolutely no reason not to get started when you have the right teams and system in place. David and Stu, the owners of Storehouse 310, have been investing themselves for over 15 years. They are on a mission to help as many active duty, reserves, and military veterans create financial freedom through the power of real estate investing. They are honest, transparent, and they prioritize service and giving. They have even committed to give the first 10% of their profits to partner nonprofit organizations that support veteran causes. For more information about their program, send an email to podcast at storehouse310turnkey.com. Again, that is podcast at storehouse310turnkey.com. Tell David and Stu you heard about them through the Military Millionaire Podcast, and they will get you going down the right path. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Dave, and I'm here with Gabriel Hamill, who did a little time in the Guard and has built an empire through seller financing and other creative means of investing. I'm super stoked to walk through this journey with you. Uh, Gabriel, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah. it's been. Uh, we hung out this week at uh, Bigger Pockets Conference, and uh, we've talked a little bit on Instagram, so I'm just excited to get to sit and talk to you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, brother. Yeah. Um, well, when I was about 19, I read a book. Some, some of your guests may have read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. <laughs> um, and, and it changed the direction. In fact, it was the first book I ever read uh, word for word, cover to cover. Um, you know, after high school, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I, I had joined the Army National Guard my senior year, had gone to basic training, uh, read this book, did some odd and end jobs throughout um, after high school, but then I got deployed. And while I was, while I was deployed in 03 and 04, I thought about a lot of the lessons I learned, uh, in, in that book. And I was 
dead set that when I came back, I was gonna gonna buy property. So, uh, 2005 bought my first house, and I did the same thing in 2006, 2007, and and back then banks were giving out financing. So I didn't have a job, didn't didn't have income, but banks were giving out money, and so. First couple houses were no money down. One was a five percent down deal, and and I was I was doing pretty good there. Uh, the properties cash flowed, and then two thousand eight hit, and I went to the bank, and they said, "Hey, you need a job. You actually need a down payment and income." And so that's when I had to get uh, start getting pretty creative and start doing seller financing deals. And so two thousand nine, ten, eleven, twelve is where I really started to build up my portfolio of seller financing. That's awesome. So what uh like what turns you on to seller financing? I mean, obviously not being able to borrow money, but where'd you hear about that? A lot of people don't even know that's a thing. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't know a lot about it. And and for me, it, it kind of came out of necessity. So so backing up a little bit, um, when I had those three houses, I uh also had a I had opened up a small nutrition store with a friend of mine that I was deployed with. And some months, some months you know, I was only cash flowing a couple hundred dollars a month. And so I'm standing in my store. I had these couple houses, they cash flowed a little bit. And I'm thinking, I'm just doing the math going for me to really make a living for me to really be able to live off my rental income. This traditional financing thing just isn't going to fly. As I'm thinking about my financial goals, my now wife gives me a call early into our relationship and says, Hey, I'm pregnant. So I'm going, Oh my gosh, you know, like, Obviously, I wouldn't change it for the world, but I had this this uh, this goal to be financially free before I had kids. And so, long story short, I shut the store down, took a bunch of odd and jobs. I mean, I was just Craigslist stuff, and I ended up with a minimum wage uh, a minimum wage job. I was also coaching high school wrestling, but I took a job in the special education class in that high school. Uh, about three months in cleaning shit out of a stall that uh, a kid had thrown around and my, and my heart goes out to these, you know, these kids, but that was not my, not my dream job. And so I set a goal is, Hey, I have to replace this income. And with it being not a high paying job, it was an easier attainable uh, goal to replace that income. So I just searched out. I was knocking on doors. I was making phone calls. I was just scouring Craigslist every day for a seller financing opportunity and the first one that came along was uh, four units. It was two duplexes side by side, and it cash flowed almost to the dollar what I was making at that at that job. And at that point, I finished out that year, and I decided to stop working, even though even though I wasn't wealthy yet. I was able to replace that income with cash flowing properties, and now I had my time to go out and search for more. So that was kind of the beginning of beginning of that journey with seller finance, and it really came out of necessity of. Hey, I need to make this work and create more cash flow than traditional financing is going to give me. Yeah, and the fact that you didn't have like a huge W two income for banks, yep, kind of forced your hand. But so I, I'm a huge fan. I, uh, I mean, I uh, just refinanced my ten unit last week, and in the refinance, I closed out all my seller financing and took cash on top of that. So I was able to pull my entire personal down payment out. And also pay off all my seller financing and drop my payment like 200 bucks a month. But I, awesome. I bought that thing at like four and a half percent down. And everybody's like, how in the world do you buy a commercial property? I met a local lender that was cool. And I asked the seller the right question. And I think that yep. it's funny to me because so many people don't ask 
the question about seller financing. And they're like, well, how do you find these deals? Like, well, people aren't just walking around usually saying, hey, uh, I want to seller finance my house to you. Do you have any uh, secrets for how you bring that conversation up? Yeah. So it's interesting. My All the seller financing deals I did in 2009, 10, 11, 12, um, these were all non-listed properties. And so the sellers were typically uh, men and women in their 60s and 70s, really, really good people. They were just busy and tired landlords because they had jobs or their own businesses and they'd own the asset. They'd own the properties for, for some time and they were just burnt out. So a lot of the stuff I did then were non-listed and they were properties that were poorly managed, under-rented and deferred maintenance. And those are the things I was really looking for is where can I, if I can find a tired landlord and there's value to be added, if I can create a scenario that's a win for them and a win for me, it's an opportunity. And so most sellers were stuck on down payment, interest rate or purchase price, but rarely, almost never all three. And so for me, not having a huge down payment, I figured, hey, if I could give them a price close to what they want, but with terms that work for me, it's a true win-win. And so I was just having conversations with sellers and really just asking, I mean, you said it, asking good questions and then just shutting up and listening and seeing what they need. And if you can give them what they need and solve their problem, you can create an amazing deal for them and for yourself. I mean, so many times I walk away from a closing, I'm excited about buying it and the seller is thanking me for buying it from them. And it's a, it's a true win-win. Yeah. And I love that you, like you said, they're stuck on a down payment or a monthly payment or an interest rate or whatever, but not all three. So I'm in, I'm in negotiations. I'm going to jinx it by, let me like knock on wood. Um, I'm negotiating on a 12 unit right now. And the guy yeah. is 76, self-managed, clearly under market value, clearly underperforming asset. He wants out. And I'm like talking to him. He's like, I owe 20 grand on it. After that, like he mentioned a number, but he's like, that's really my biggest thing. So I'm like, okay, great. So now I know the target down payment and I just need to tweak what he gets as a monthly payment. And knowing the numbers on this property, I could probably just tell him like, I'll give you a thousand bucks for the next 15 years. Yeah. And he would be totally cool with zero interest and a monthly payment because that would be more than what he's been pulling in because of how bad the management is on it. Yeah. Um, and so it's really cool to be able to do that because I would never get those kinds of terms on a commercial lender for a big multifamily but it's also going to be helpful to him. Anyway, so we're tweaking final back and forth on that. But you know, I basically keep going back to, dude, I'm going to be paying you more than your cash flow right now and you won't have a headache. Well, so, that's the thing. Like you, you nailed it. Like you're able to tweak it and change it where you go to a bank and the bank's telling you, hey, here's the terms. This is how much you need to bring in. This is the interest rate. You don't have a lot of say. I mean, some of the community banks, there's a little flexibility, but with seller financing, there's a lot of flexibility. What is it that they want? I mean, you can be pretty, pretty creative when it, when it comes to that. So, and I hear people say, Hey, you can't do seller financing right you know, now because it's a, you know, a seller's market and there's a lot of cash in the market. And sure, that's, that's a reality in, in some, but there are sellers that want to carry the financing. There's a lot of uh, people in their 60s and 70s that don't want a lump sum of cash. They don't want to pay that capital gain <clears throat> And they're happier with just having that monthly income, uh, possibly for the rest of their life, but, but at least for the next several years. Yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, you hit the nail on the head and we'll probably touch on how taxes work on that in a minute. But what's the, just for the audience's sake, do you have a, a crazy terms, like a favorite deal you did in great terms of terms? Gosh, you know, I... Terms of terms. That's a terrible terms of terms. Um, 
You know, I think, I think a lot of the deals I did early on, you know, they were infinite returns because I was doing no money down, but I was strategically closing a couple days, a uh, couple days into the month. And so a lot of times at closing, I would, I would collect the rent for that month. I would have the deposits and I would have last month's rent. So there were many instances where I was actually walking away from the table at closing with cash. Uh, other times when I brought in small down payments, kind of the same deal where with deposits and, and prorated rents and such, it would end up being a wash and I would end up having to bring nothing to the table. Now, not every deal was a no money down deal, but oftentimes it was, it was lower money down because the seller was more interested in that monthly payment than they were the down payment. I really love what you just said there that some people may have missed with the strategic date. The yes. fact that you can take the prorated rent and still not owe them a monthly payment till later on and you'll yeah. come out, you'll start out on, on top. That's awesome. Yeah. And there's actually been some deals where I've deferred or not had a payment for even several months. So uh, a couple properties where I knew there was a little bit of work I wanted to put in. And it's, it's just asking those questions like, hey, what if payment started three months after we close? What if they started six months after we close? A bank would laugh at you, but a seller, if there's a if there's a strong reason for that, they might be okay with that. You just, you never know. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, like you said, that's huge because you can structure all of that. And I've seen, I mean, you see interest only, you see no interest, you see yep. it's totally up to what you're willing to ask and they're willing to agree to. Yeah, you're no, exactly right. I've, I, I've done a lot of interest only with the seller financing just so the payment would be lower and have that cash flow. Uh, there was one scenario where it was an interest-only payment, but they agreed that $500 each month went directly towards principal. So the structure of it, it was actually, my payment was low and I was knocking out the principal balance too. So it's, there's just so much, so many different things you can do. That's pretty cool. Yeah. it's So, so I know we touched on the tax thing real quick and uh, I'll probably ask you to expound on that here, but what are some reasons that you found that people would be open to seller financing? Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm not a tax professional, but you know, my understanding is, yep, uh, you know, if, if you pay them off and they get that lump sum of cash, they're paying a, a big capital gain on that. Um, it, they still have to pay capital gains if you're paying them over time, but it's not a big lump sum. So they're able to, to pocket that money. And then, you know, the other part of that is a lot of these sellers, they don't want the cash they're not necessarily complaining, but yes, they're going to pay that tax bill, that capital gain. And now they have a cash problem. They need to go put that money somewhere to give them a return. A lot of these sellers, they're sophisticated enough to know, Hey, I just don't want a bunch of cash to live off. I actually want a return on my money. You know, I have to go stick it in the stock market at 60s and 70 years old, which is the age of a lot of these sellers. They don't want to go stick their money in the stock market. They know that could disappear within their lifetime. Um, and so, I would say that's one of the biggest advantages is you're giving them an interest that they're happy with. They're not paying that huge capital gain up front. They're happy. That's very true. Or they've got my problem, which is if cash sits in a bank account, I will find somewhere to spend it. Absolutely. And so yeah. I always keep my money. My wife hates how many bank accounts I have laying around, but it's like the profit first strategy. I read that book and I was like, man, I subconsciously do this where I have like 
this money goes to this bank and then this money goes to this bank and I don't even have an, own a card for that bank. So like, don't touch yeah, deploy, it. Deploy the money, deploy mm-hmm. the money. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And if I'm going to be saving for an emergency fund, it's got to be somewhere where I'm not going to see that the emergency fund has 10 grand in it or I will deploy it somewhere. Yeah. Uh, emergency fund. So, uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really cool. So definitely the tax thing. And then just the, like you said, like, what do you want with $40,000 or a hundred thousand dollars sitting in a bank account when you could have somebody paying you that interest on your money for the next 30 years without you having to go invest it somewhere else? Yep, exactly. That's really cool. Uh, and yeah, I love seller financing. Um, so I know you're, uh, you're a very driven individual and you've done some other cool stuff in your life. We, we can touch on if we want to, but uh, what is it that like, what's, what's motivating you going forward now? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's my family. I have, I have two young kids. Uh, well, they're not that young now. They're nine and 11. Um, I have an awesome wife. And so for me, it's, I, I always want to be getting better, you know, in, in all areas. And to me, uh, my family's important. My health is important. Building wealth is important. Uh, contributing is important. And so I don't want to be stagnant. I want to, I want to push myself in all those, in all those areas. I, I truly believe if we're not getting better, we're getting worse. And so I I like to set goals. I like to, to make sure that the things I do align with those things, with my family, with my health, with my wealth, my happiness and contribution. Yeah, that's that's super cool. I was going to joke earlier about the wrestling coach making sense because for those of you who aren't watching this live, Gabriel's built like a tank, so it's uh, makes makes sense. It seems like wrestlers don't ever lose that. What a yeah. man! So many questions. What would you say? So, like, if a young 18, 19, 20 year old was to walk up to you looking for advice, like, what would be like the one thing you think you'd tell them going forward? I'd say, you know, early on, don't buy stupid things. You know, save your money. Now, I don't think, I think saving, saving to wealth is, is difficult. But I think early on, um, saving your money and the simpleness of starting to buy assets instead of liabilities. You know, there, you can buy a lot of doodads. You can buy a lot of things that um, are not going to go up in value from the age of 18 to 20, whatever, or 30. And I think it's easy for people to get in the habit of just buying things and creating, uh, you know, not, not real estate debt, but consumer debt. And so I think, I think young people have an opportunity to, to save, to save a little bit of money and then put that into a deal. Yeah, I agree. I always, what I try to tell service members is, uh, you know, there's this popular mentality that we don't make enough money and whatever, uh, I would argue that for a lot of good reasons with people, but I tell them, you know, it's not your income that makes you wealthy. That helps, but it's your expenses. I know yep. plenty of people who make $500,000 as a surgeon and do not have financial independence. And, and, that, and that's the whole thing right there is I've met people that whether it's a minimum wage job or a high paying job, a lot of people, they make more, they spend more, they make more, they spend more. And I think that's why getting that in their head early on, no matter how much they no matter how much they make, if your expenses always, always hit your income, and in some cases, people are always spending more than their income, it puts them in a, in a tough spot. And then they have to work for money instead of letting their money work for them. So you can do a, you can do a lot of damage in a, in a decade if you're smart with your money. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know some young E4s that are crushing it right now. And I'm like, dude, if you can just keep your expenses low, you'll be 
totally financially free within a few years and it'll be super cool to watch. Yeah. So are you still in the single family seller financing realm or has your strategy shifted as time has gone on? Yeah, my portfolio is kind of a mix. So um, my first three houses were single family and then the the early seller financing stuff were smaller multi, twos and threes, fours, sixes. And in 2014, I had refinanced out of all, all my seller financing deals. And, and then I've kind of done a mix. So I've, I have mostly some smaller multifamily, some apartments. I have some mixed use commercial uh, residential stuff. And uh, more recently, uh, earlier this year, bought a mobile home park. I, ba- I, I backed out of a mobile home park that I was in contract on and I am now in contract on another park. And so, but all, you know, all the properties I look at, they're all value add, but I'm never relying on that value add to make, to make the deal work. So I, I really base everything on what the asset, what the property is, is currently doing. I make sure my financing fits what the property is actually doing. My performa, I never, I never bank on my performa. That I know my market, I know my sub market, and I usually hit that. So, yeah, that's cool, and that's very, very good to hear. A lot of people, the value add thing has become a, a. I mean, obviously, it's very important, but if it's not cash flowing or at least going to support itself when you buy it, you're just asking for house of cards. Yeah, and I, I mean, I can give you a ton of examples where, like, an easy one was I bought a six unit place last year where the rents were below market. They were each unit was like 625 a month or 650 market rent was closer to a thousand, but I still based, I mean, and I know that market really well. I still based it on that 650 just in case I was wrong, just in case something, something came up that I, that I didn't know. I want to make sure the property still worked. Now I, the, I closed on it and three people moved out and I was able to bump those three right up to, to market. And that, that was fortunate. So yeah, there's something to be said about knowing knowing your market, but ne- never bank it on performa. Yeah, because you never know. You may have a. Uh, I closed my ten and evicted two people within the first two months, and then had someone. Uh, I mean, you just never know. I had someone die in it last month, uh, okay. which is great. My my uh, insurance company is talking about whether they're gonna pay for the crazy environmental cleaning. Oh my goodness. Like we're in Missouri and they're charging, they're looking like 3,800 bucks to do an environmental cleaning on my, on my apartment building. And I'm like, it it costs 10% of that to evict someone. So I can't imagine what that would cost in California, but right. Yeah. So that was definitely an unbudgeted for, uh, (laughs) I mean, granted there's, there's definitely CapEx and everything, but I was not planning on like, yeah, someone's going to die in my apartment and just lay there for two weeks before someone realizes that. Yeah. So yeah, it, people don't people don't always factor that one in. Yeah, so I mean, point being, you're spot on. If it doesn't make money when you buy, if I had bought that thing and I was in negative cash flow, and that happened in the first month I took over, that would have been a very rough hurdle for starting out. So having those reserves and having it work when you buy, I think there's, especially right now when it's you know kind of a seller's market in a lot of places there is a misconception with buyers where you have to pay what people are asking. And yep. there are people asking what a, I see it. You see, I mean, you see it all the time on performance where they say, Oh, it should rent for this. So it's worth this much. Okay, great. Well, you know what? It should rent for that, but it's not. So uh, yep. why are you trying to get a price for something you failed to do as a owner? And that's a conversation you just need to have. 
Yeah. And I, and I'm seeing it. I mean, I have a lot of stuff come across my desk that are being sent over by commercial brokers who have, they've underwritten and vetted the deal, but I, I'm going to dig into that myself. And, um, with the, with the mobile home park that I did purchase, uh, earlier this year, as I dug into the numbers, it got better and better. So, uh, rents hadn't been increased in four and a half years. Utilities weren't being billed back. It, you know, it was, so it was under rented. There's some value add there. And the more I dug in, um, and some of the numbers were actually wrong in my favor. And so as I got into it, it was better and better. The property that I backed out of, it was, it was the opposite. They created this performa that actually looked really good. They took the, the highest month of rent, which as I got into it, it was like the highest month of rent in three years, probably, probably more than that. Um, and they showed the lowest expenses. And as I got into that, it was like, wait a minute. Um, only one month have you ever hit this rent. Mm. Every month, your expenses are much higher. Vacancy is much higher. Um, but the thing looked beautiful on the Performa. You know, most people looking at this on paper going, man, this is a, this is a good buy. So it's important, it's important to dig into those numbers and, and really know them. Yeah, you can find all that information. Well, sometimes you really got to dig, but through utilities reports and schedule E's and all this stuff. And, and too often people look at Performa and say, wow, and they get star-eyed. No, <laughs> it's yeah. very rare. It's, it's very rare that you see a Performa that doesn't look better than it is. Yeah. And, and trust your instinct, you know, math and trust your gut. Yeah. Like this one I'm looking at right now uh, that I mentioned earlier, the it's, it's throwing me for a loop. The pro forma looks terrible. And I'm talking to the guy and I'm like, there's no way, like it can't be this bad. Like I, he's got to be just really bad at bookkeeping. So anyway, this is probably the first time. I mean, I, I always like to have my property manager look at stuff, but this is probably the first time where I've been like, I am not writing you an offer until I see all of the information I would normally ask for in due diligence. Like I'm not yeah. even playing the offer game because I don't even know where to come close on this thing. Yeah. Your rent roll says this and your pro forma says way worse. Your schedule is even worse than that. And I'm like, I don't know what you're doing with bookkeeping, but you're terrible at it because you're supposed to make this look better than it is and you're doing the wrong way. Yeah, that's how that's how the park was that I backed out of. It was like, same thing. Not, nothing matched up. Yeah. And you're like, there's no way this guy is underselling himself this much, but... Sometimes they just don't understand how to, you know, how to make a property look good. Like I think yeah. this guy's wrapping personal expenses into his P and L, which is great for me because then I can be like, well, it says you're only making this much. <laughs> but yep, I've I've seen that I've seen that too. I'm like, wow, this property has a lot of travel expenses. Yeah, I've even seen like like wow, they got a new car with this property, so that's not going to be an expense for me. <laughs> so <laughs> come with the house. Right? That's funny. Awesome. So what advice would you want to give anyone look I guess not advice. We'll skip that. We kind of asked a question like that already. I guess okay. what would what would I say is some of some of the pitfalls that you you see with seller financing. Are there are there any things you see people getting in trouble with? Um, you know, I've always structured it where some sellers will carry for a long period of time and some want a shorter period. And a lot of that is just building their trust and building relationships like, like any business. It's a relationship business and I mean, I have example after example of just relationships and how how that's really been a, a big part of my business, and not just with the seller financing stuff. But one thing, one metric that I that I would use, uh, especially early on, and 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 to this day, is any money that I would put down, I needed to make sure that I made that back in the the time period that they carried the financing. So. If they were going to carry the financing for only a couple of years, but I had to put a lot of money down, 
Would I make that money back? Yes, I would calculate my cash on cash return and, and such, but would I make that back in that time period, whether it's two years, five years? Because if the worst case scenario, and I've never had to do this, but if the worst case scenario is they had to foreclose or you had to give the property back, did you make all your money? Did you make all your money back? And so that was something I looked at early on. Um, there are sellers that will carry financing, but they want a whole bunch down and it's a, sh- and it's a high payment and it's a short term. And those wouldn't be ones I'm interested in because then in those cases, the seller gets the property back and they do it again. Um, and I've watched sellers strategically, strategically do that. They keep a little down payment. They're getting this high payment monthly with knowing that more than likely they're going to get the property back and be able to do that again. Yeah, I'm kind of in a situation that seems to be a strategy like that where the guy knew he was going to get the property back and try to keep different different situation uh more like didn't uphold his end of the contract and owed a lot of money in the deal but we won't get into that but uh yeah it's definitely like you said it's true people will do that and they will take advantage of you if you're not so i would say if you're looking into getting into seller financing um a book I heard recommended once, and I haven't finished it yet, but it seems good so far, is uh, Invest in Debt, which is no longer in print. But uh, understand how loans work. If you're going to be negotiating this stuff, don't shoot yourself in the foot by not understanding how the interest factors in and how the term factors in. And like, don't, don't negotiate something if you don't understand what you're doing. Yep. And, and as I said before, too, the, the sellers that want to carry the financing, I've never had to talk a seller into carrying the financing. So I, sellers, sellers that are willing to do it, they want to do it. They already see the advantage of being the bank and earning that interest. And so, again, as you said before, it's, it's asking good questions and then just listening and seeing what they need. And if you can help them solve their problem, they're happy. Absolutely. All about problem solving. In fact, I've heard some investors say, I'm not a real estate investor. I solve problems. And I think there's some truth to that. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to that. Awesome. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash militarymillionaire and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash militarymillionaire to get started today. Now, why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. I listen to Audible every single day on my commute to and from work. Now, to download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash militarymillionaire. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash militarymillionaire for your free audiobook today. Well, let me ask you... Do you have a favorite resource, book, course, or website that you would recommend to anyone getting started in real estate? You know, I, I, love, all the, I love all the Rich Dad um, stuff, especially early on. Um, you know, I get asked all the time, hey, where do I start? And I, I tell people, hey, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, call me back. So anyone that hasn't read that should read that. I'm, as far as resources, uh, I'm, I'm continuing <clears throat> always to educate myself through, through podcasts and through books and, and such. So... I think I think if there is a specific niche that someone's interested in, the information's out there. Finding finding people that are doing it and asking them the right questions. I found that most people that are in the that are in the business they value their time a lot, but they're also very giving uh, with people that are interested. I, I have a couple of buddies right now that 
are fired up about shifting into real estate investing and it's exciting for them, but it's also exciting for me to, to hear them on fire. And so it's this natural kind of coaching and I enjoy that. And, and so do they. So. Well, you mentioned the coaching thing. I know you're in a mastermind group and I know you, you buy into all that as, as do I, obviously, what do you think, like, where do you think mindset plays into all of this? I think it's huge. I think it's, it's, it's a big deal. You gotta want it, you know, up up here first. If you if you, you gotta want it in your mind, it's. I, I took a lot of the principles that I learned in uh, high school wrestling into real estate investing. So it's it's desire. You gotta have that desire, and and sure, law of attraction. I believe that visualization, wanting it, but you also got to put that into action. So there's the desire piece, and then there's the execution piece. So yeah, I told a lot of people, hey, I'm gonna win a state championship before I did. I told a lot of people um, when I was deployed, I'm going to come back and I'm going to buy real estate. I'm going to build a, a real estate empire, a real estate portfolio. And yeah, a lot of people think you're crazy. And then you start proving to them and to yourself, hey, I can, I'm doing this. So uh, mindset's huge. But I think the, the part that's not talked about enough is the action piece. Because desire alone isn't going to get the job done. You, you, you got to want it, yes, but then you got to put in the work and actually execute on those things. You got to make those calls and look at those properties and build those relationships. So that's how I, that's how I feel about that. I like that you brought up the wrestling piece when you mentioned visual, visualization. Uh, vision and like vision board and clarity has been something I've been, I don't want to say struggling with this year, but it was a main focus point for like a solid month where I was just like, okay, write this out, rewrite this, redream this. Like, where where am I going with this? And, you know, it's like the old analogy about the guy cutting down a tree and he just starts cutting a tree vice the guy who takes 30 minutes to sharpen the axe first and we'll yeah. finish first. And I think that's very, very important. And I, the more I do it, the more I believe in it. Uh, but I also let you mentioned in there that people are going to think you're crazy. So surely you've never had anyone tell you real estate investing was, uh, was something you shouldn't do and you should just stay in your little W2 lane. Right. Yeah. Never, never. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. You know, I, I had very in, encouraging parents, but they were also, um, you know, skeptical. How, how do you know this is going to work? This feels risky. This seems, this seems risky. Same thing, same thing with my buddies and, and my, and my friends early on, you know, how do you know? How do you know this is going to work? I'm going to make it work. Yeah. So t- to me, it's it's drowning out the naysayers. And if you have a desire and you have a dream, don't don't let others uh, get in your way. It's part of that goes back to who you're taking your advice from. Mm. You know, if you're if you want fitness advice, who are you going to ask? If you want financial advice, who are you going to ask? You're going to ask someone that's been there and done that and has a track record. And so. I'm careful with who I, who I listen to. And, you know, early on, yeah, you have a lot of people that have never, never done it telling, telling you it's risky. And then they end up getting jobs that they hate and, you know, and they wonder why. That filter is something that a lot of people don't learn. And it is so, so important. We were talking about that before we hit record where I'm debating whether I want to stay in the military or not. And I've got one side of the group that's like, you're so far along, don't quit. And the other side of the group that's like, dude, pull chocks, you're done, do it. And I'm having to sit back and that's the most important thing to me. Whenever someone gives me advice is, do I want their life in 10 years? Like, do yeah. I, is that what I aspire to be? And people forget that, you know, like you'll hear, same thing. I started real estate investing. I had a few people that were like, that's a great idea. But the vast majority were like, I don't understand. So I'm going to just tell you that's stupid. 
Uh, and I had to sit back and go, okay, great. Well, you're 65 and working a day job. Do yep. I want to be you? No. Okay. Well, then this guy is 45 and just spent three months in the Caribbean. Do I yeah. want to be him? Hmm. Like which which one which one do I think is worth listening to? Right. And I and I think a job is risky. I mean, really, it can you know your boss or whoever they can they can end you at, at any time. And I've seen that happen so many times. Even if you love your job, which is which is great. I mean, that's a that's a flow of income. And if you love what you're doing, great. Do it do it forever. I mean, I met a surgeon recently that loves his job, but he also started syndicating real estate. So now he works on his own on his own terms and likes what he does, but he doesn't have to do it anymore. And that's the biggest difference. If you love what you do, sure, keep doing it, but be in a position that you don't have to or that you can do it on your terms. You're not uh, a slave to the job. Yeah. And that's huge that you mentioned that. We're seeing a huge shift in this right now in the economy. I don't know if you saw the article. I haven't really dug into it. I don't know all the truth, but it's been getting shared around a lot lately. But apparently General Electric a general electric just suspended 20,000 pension payments this month. Well, yeah, um, I didn't, I didn't know that, but it's yeah. like stuff like that. Exactly. Like there's a lot of things that people are supposed to do and companies are supposed to do and things are supposed to happen. But what if, right? What are you doing to take control of that situation? Yeah. It's, it's risky to not put your financial uh, freedom in your own hands. Yeah. Well, and I would, I always just joke with people like, yeah, you're right. It might not work, but you know what? I'd rather blame myself if it fails. Cause I suck than be able to blame a whole bunch of other people. Cause I didn't do anything about it. Exactly. I'm with you hundred percent on that. Awesome. Well, Hey, uh, before we wrap this up, is there anything you'd like to add any parting advice or big ideas? Yeah. I just want, you know, your listeners to, to go, to go for it. Uh, if, if they have a dream, if they have a desire of a life to be a certain way, don't, don't let anything hold you back. If there's something that you want, you know, you know, here's something too, the, the value of time freedom. And I started talking a lot about time freedom recently. And I, I want people, I want your listeners to really think about as they're building their portfolios to not underestimate the value of time. Er, early on, when I was young, younger, it was about, I want to be rich and build this this empire and, uh, and there was some ego there. And as I really dug into it, what I really wanted was the freedom of time. And I've been careful with how I've built my business so that I still have my time so I can spend time with my family and spend time on my health and be able to do the things that I want to do. So I would say, don't, don't lose sight of why you're building what you're building because I've seen the other side where people uh, build something really great, but it, it just kills them because it takes up all their time and all their energy. And the reason that they started building it in the first place, they've lost track of, and now it's 20 years later and they put in all this time to something, but forgot about why they were doing it. So don't underestimate the value of time freedom. There's ways to, to build without just killing all your time and that would be the biggest thing I would say. We are in total agreement. That's my biggest decision or probably my biggest motivator for getting out. Like the guy, when David Osborne spoke this past week. He was uh, great. He was so good. Oh, he was good. But he, or was it, I don't know if it was him or if it was before that, but someone, oh, it was Jake and Gino actually. Sorry. Right before that, someone said, they were asking like, what's your motivation? And someone was like financial freedom. And the guy stopped and said, okay, what does that mean to you? And immediately my answer is control of my schedule. Yep. Controlling my time. And I know, uh, like if you use Brandon Turner, for example, that's somebody, something I've always looked up to about him is that 
he does very well for himself. He could probably do better for himself, but he looks at everything through the filter of how do I do this without taking away from the life I have right now? Yep. And he's very good about, he, he's probably the only person I know who like truly lives the four hour work week type lifestyle while being successful. Uh, personally, no personally. And, uh, man, that's so big. And well, and I think if, when I've talked to, when I've talked with people, the more you dig into why they're doing what they're doing, it's usually that it almost always comes down to, they want more time and they want to be in control of what they do with that time. So. Mm. Yeah. Want to work when I want, where I want, how I want, not exactly. when I'm told. Yeah. Want to be able to sit around in my boxers if I can. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Hey, Thank you very much for joining us. Where can people get a hold of you? Yeah, the best way uh, would be Instagram. Gabriel R. Hamill or Gabriel Hamill at Instagram. You can find me on Facebook too. And I have a website, hamillinvestments.com, but more active on Instagram these days. I know that's how we, that's how we connected. Yes, we did. I feel special too, because we connected before I heard your Bigger Pockets podcast. In fact, you told me about your Bigger Pockets uh, episode as we were chatting and I was like, oh yeah, I got to go listen to it. And then after I listened to it, I was like, oh, hey, you were in the military. We should, we should talk about you being right. on my show. Yeah. And then we got to hang out. We got to hang out this week, which was, which was cool to be able to spend some time before recording this. So. <laughs> yeah. It's rare that I get to see people in person first. It's usually like, hey, you've been on my show and now we're going to be at the same place. Let's meet up. So awesome. Well, hey, Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really great episode and I know people are just going to get so much value out of this. Cool, man. I, I appreciate appreciate what you do. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode about my journey from military to millionaire. If you liked it, be sure to visit from militarytomillionaire.com slash podcast to subscribe to future podcasts. While you're there, we'd love for you to rate the show. Give us a review on iTunes. Now get out there and take action.